Well, there's absolutely nothing, uh, as you probably know, that any of us has ever done or will ever be able to do by our own power that would qualify us as sons and daughters of the one true God. That qualification comes from Jesus Christ alone. In fact, we must completely submit ourselves and our own sense of self-worth to Him by offering up to Him all that we have and everything that we are so that He becomes our entire identity. That's why Paul said, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why would anyone ever boast about their weaknesses? Really? What a strange thing to say. Who would ever boast about their inabilities, their lack of understanding, their shortcomings that is completely nonsensical to our basic human nature? But Paul goes on to explain why he boasts in his weaknesses. He says, I boast in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. For people who haven't had a revelation of who Christ is in their lives yet, that statement makes no sense. Makes no sense whatsoever, and yet it is the way of the gospel. The less of our will, the more His is realized in our lives. The less of our strength, the more His power is realized in our lives. The less of our wisdom, the more His is realized in our lives. That's counterintuitive to our nature, because our nature wants us to focus on self not selflessness, and yet the single greatest self-serving act that any of us could ever perform, the greatest thing that we could ever do for ourselves is to die to ourselves so that Christ might live in us. Again, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Galatians 2.20, his entire identity was found only in the person of Jesus Christ. What a strange and confounding statement that is to folks who are not a part of the body of Christ because our nature wants to be fed by us. In fact, it demands that we feed it, that we look out for number one before all others. And Jesus made it clear to anyone who would ever desire to become his disciple he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Luke 9, 23 and 24. Okay, and so for all of us who follow Christ, uh, we know all that, don't we? I mean, we understand the concept, at least, of dying to self and allowing Christ to rule in and over our lives. I think conceptually, uh, we probably don't struggle with that too much as Christians because most of us have probably heard that from the time we were first introduced to Jesus Christ. And yet, if there is one area of Christian discipleship that followers of Christ struggle with more than any other, I believe that it is this area of dying to self. And again, it's not primarily because we don't understand it intellectually. I think most of us understand it quite well. It's actually the doing part that we have such a hard time with because it flies directly in the face of every natural inclination towards self that churns inside every human being from the moment that we're born. In Galatians 5.17, Paul says, The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. 
You see, our natural desire is to feed the flesh, to satisfy ourselves. But the Spirit of Christ within us opposes the flesh in deference to that which is even better, which is fellowship with Christ by the way of the Holy Spirit. But because it's so much easier and far more natural for us to gratify ourselves, we struggle. Boy, do we struggle to die to ourselves to get out of the way and let Christ rule in our hearts and in our minds and in our bodies. And so I just wanted to cover all of that right off the bat this morning as we continue our sermon series, working our way through the book of Daniel in a message entitled Grace for the Humble, because we're going to see King Nebuchadnezzar in the last 10 verses of chapter 4 live through the fulfillment of a prophetic dream that he'd had a year earlier that warned him that if he didn't change the way that he was living, his life was going to be deeply affected in a bad way. And given the fact that he'd already had prophetic dreams in the past, And the fact that he trusted his friend Daniel's interpretations and the fact that at the end of the interpretation, Daniel explains to the king that all of the doom and gloom from the dream could potentially be avoided if he'd just make some changes in his life and repent of his sin. I think there's a tendency for us reading this over two and a half millennia later, of course, to get a little judgmental toward Nebuchadnezzar, who has this dream in plenty of time, a full year before it is fulfilled, to respond to the extraordinary opportunity that he's been given by God to repent and change his ways and quite possibly stay the coming judgment that is headed his way. And yet here we are, believers, followers of Christ with thousands of years of recorded history at our disposal, God's prophetic word to us readily available, literally at our fingertips, and yet very often we act no different than the king did then. Right? We've been warned very clearly in God's word what will happen when we choose to live for ourselves instead of dying to ourselves and completely living for Christ. And yet, we still at times disregard those warnings, don't we? And we do what we want anyway. And I, by the way, I include myself in these statements. And so first of all, we should actually be able to identify, at least to some extent, with the plight of Nebuchadnezzar here because of our own failures. But far more than that, and this is really the point that should be driven home for us today from this story, is the remarkable grace of God that is given to the humble regardless of our past deeds or our past loyalties or our past decisions. Because when we're humbled before God, He floods us with mercy and grace no matter how far we have been from Him. And furthermore... Although his love for us uh, may well be unconditional, the fulfillment of his promises for our lives is anything but unconditional. In fact, it is very much conditional. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, there's a condition attached to the promise of eternal life. We must believe. 1 Peter 3, 7 says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs of you and of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So if we want God to pay any heed to our prayers, men, we must honor our wives. There's a condition attached to God receiving our prayers. Matthew 6, 14, Jesus said, If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. So forgiveness is conditional. We must forgive in order to be 
forgiven. John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus said, if you abide in my word, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Okay, if we want to experience freedom then from guilt and enslaving sin, we must abide in, our lives must be guided by and obedient to the teachings of Christ. Clearly, there are conditions that we must meet if we want the promises of God to be realized in our lives. And there are many of these promises with conditions attached to them all throughout Scripture. And our story today focuses on one of those in particular. And I happen to think that the condition attached to this promise is one that a lot of Christians struggle with more than any other, which is humility before God dying to ourselves, as we've been talking about. And the particular promise that is attached to humility for Nebuchadnezzar, as we'll see, and for us today, because God's word never changes, is summed up in Peter's statement in 1 Peter 5.5. 5. He says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Okay? The promise attached to our humility is his grace. So if we want our lives to be characterized by the grace of God, we must humble ourselves before Him or be humbled by Him. And I'd much prefer the former to the latter, and I'm sure you would as well. And so as we work our way through the rest of this portion of the story in chapter 4 today, let's ask ourselves as we go, is there anything in my life that I've been unwilling to let go of? Is there any part of me that I haven't given completely to God? And if I were... To completely humble every part of myself before him and allow his grace to fill those areas of my life that I've been keeping from him. See, that's a form of pride when we hold back from God. What would the outcome be? How would my life look different than it does now? And what blessings in my life that I've been praying for could possibly be restored back to me if I died to my own selfness and humbled every last part of myself before God? Because Peter says that God resists the proud. And I think that sometimes we long for and pray for things in our lives that pertain to areas of our lives that we haven't completely submitted to God yet, and then we wonder why our prayers aren't being answered. But if we haven't fully offered that part of our life to Him, which is a form of pride, again, what we will find is resistance from God rather than the grace and the blessings that we're praying for. All right, let's jump back in our text this morning. And uh, right where we left off last week, and we'll see if we can gain some insight into God's working in our lives as it pertains to um, humility and grace. And in case you weren't here uh, for the last part of the story, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. This massive towering tree that represented him and his rule. And he was warned that the tree would be chopped down, but the stump would remain for seven periods of time, which was seven years. And he would be driven out of his rule, and in fact out of his right mind. That he would actually live like an animal, specifically an ox, wandering the fields and eating grass with the other animals. Until in humility he recognizes and acknowledges the ultimate ruling authority, which of course we know is the king that is above all kings. And then just at the end of the interpretation of the dream, Daniel offers the king an option to repent, to change the way that he's been living and treating others uh, in order to possibly avoid this terrible judgment against him. And yet the king makes no changes at all. And instead of dying to himself in his pride, he tries to make himself like God. 
And as you'll see, the terrible dream is then fulfilled. Let's read it, verses 28 through 30. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. He was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? There's a whole lot of me, me, me in that statement, isn't there? But if you look at the accomplishments that were actually achieved in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar's reign up to that point, it's actually not hard to understand his self-inflated assessment, his, his pride, when you consider the lens that he's looking through. Nebuchadnezzar sees the greatness of his kingdom as a product of his own efforts alone. And Babylon, Babylon was truly one of the greatest cities of the ancient world. There were spectacular buildings. Uh, the architecture was magnificent. There were ornate temples. The military armaments were equally as impressive. There were parks and monuments everywhere. Uh, the outer wall of the city was 25 feet thick, wide enough for chariots driven by ho uh, four horses to pass each other on the top of the wall. It was 17 miles long. And of course, you've probably heard about the Hanging Gardens, which Nebuchadnezzar had built for his wife. It was uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, planted on a series of tiers on top of a building, of course, for aesthetic reasons, but it was also engineered to keep the building cool from the heat of summer. All of these ancient wonders ahead of their time were in his view as he stood on top of his palace and looked out over all of this wonder. So proud of his city, Nebuchadnezzar had inscriptions about its glory and his glory chiseled into the bricks of many of the buildings. In fact, archaeologists have unearthed many of those. One such inscription describing his palace on one of those bricks says, a palace as the seat of my royal authority, a building for the admiration of my people, a place of union for the land. And clearly the king was proud of his town. And it was truly an amazing place that was built up and constantly improved under Nebuchadnezzar's own vision for the city and strong leadership to see all of that accomplished. It's really not hard to understand his pride. And he obviously doesn't have any appreciation or understanding about the source of all of that talent and vision and skill and motivation and ability to lead and govern and oversee. He doesn't recognize that everything in front of him that he sees from his palace ultimately came through him, but from another source. Okay, humility is dependent upon the understanding that God is our ultimate source. And that's the first point in our, in our outline. Everything good, every achievement, every accomplishment, every product of our own labor, every talent, every imagination. In fact, the, the scripture says even every word that we speak, every command that we make exists only as God gives it to us. And I understand that a lot of people don't like to hear that. But in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Paul says, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom uh, we exist. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are as workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, all of our accomplishments, all of our good works, 
were already prepared for us by God before we even existed. John 15, 4 and 5, Jesus said, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. John 3, 27, John the Baptist said, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And James 1, 17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from God above. And Psalm 139, 1-4 says, O oh Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. I've memorized this passage and I, and I pray it every morning when I walk, when I first walk out the door, just to remind myself who God is in my life. He's the source of all good things. Even the creativity and talent and motivation that we have within us, it all comes from God. He's the ultimate source of all good things. And so if we want to experience the grace of God in every area of our lives, we have to first humbly recognize that, give Him the credit for it and the praise and gratitude that He deserves for every accomplishment and every achievement and every good thing that He does through us. And this is a key to true humility, because if we believe that our accomplishments are a result solely of our own effort, then what we're doing, whether we realize it or not, is we're elevating ourselves and our own hearts and minds is equal with God. And I know that sounds extreme, and it is extreme, but that's exactly what we're doing. When we give ourselves credit for that which only God can produce, He alone is the source of good things, but we put ourselves on equal footing with God in our minds, in our hearts, when we believe that we can do the things that in reality only God can do. You see, we are the conduit for His good works, but He is the source. And so as innocent as it may seem, when we fail to give God credit that He's due, and particularly if we become prideful in those areas, we can meet resistance from God and not even realize that is happening. Now listen, recognizing God as the source of every good thing in our lives is a remedy to pride, for sure, because once we understand that we can no longer give ourselves the credit for His working in our life, it's hard to remain prideful, but it's also easy to forget. It's easy, I know, it's easy to stand back and look at the results of whatever you've put your hand to and become inflated with pride. But we, we simply need to let go of the delusion that we are anything other than what we are. We're God's creation, yes. In fact, we're the work of His hands. We're His masterpiece, I'm not talking about devaluing ourselves or who we are. We're God's chosen people. We're a royal priesthood, according to Peter. We're more than conquerors, according to Paul. And we know that Jesus Christ died for us. It doesn't get much more important than that, right? Much more special than that. So it isn't a matter of value, because we obviously mean everything to God. It's a matter of who we boast in. Do we boast in ourselves or do we boast in Christ because we are what we are? 
We are God's great creation, blessed, redeemed, forgiven, restored, confident, able, equipped for every good work. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21 says, May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, right after explaining that I am equipped with every good thing so that I will be able to do his will, it doesn't say that through Rob Rucci, right, to whom be glory forever and ever. No, it says through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. So even though God equips us with good things to do his work, and we labor in that to achieve and accomplish good things, Jesus Christ still gets all of the glory because he is the ultimate source of everything good. And recognizing that in everything that we do will help us to remain humble before him and others, which this is the point. It removes the barriers of resistance from God. And then our lives are flooded with grace and blessing. Do you see how important it is that we get this if we want the grace of God to characterize our lives? Let's continue in our story now and we'll see uh, as the king is on the palace roof a year after his prophetic dream that predicted his downfall if he didn't change the way he was living. And this is just as he's finishing up his little speech about how great and wonderful he is. Verses 31 through 33. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. So... Nebuchadnezzar says he's heard a voice from heaven, which is the Aramaic word call. It's the Aramaic equivalent of the uh, word bat kol in Jewish tradition, which referred to a divine and often mysterious voice from heaven. Uh, more specifically, it referred to the voice of God that replaced the voice of prophecy. That's significant because although some may believe, some do believe, that the voice that Nebuchadnezzar heard here was the voice of God through a prophet, and not a literal voice coming directly from heaven. Uh, the language used here tells us that specifically this was not God speaking to Nebuchadnezzar through a prophet, as he so often did. Rather, this was his voice, in fact, speaking directly to Nebuchadnezzar without any human intervention. And there are people that read this entire passage and they believe it must have been exaggerated in order to make a point. And, and of course, there are many passages in the Bible that are allegory or metaphor, imagery. In fact, the Bible is rich in literary art and device. And yet, as we look here at these original languages, and the more that we discover through archaeological science and research, the more plausible, and in fact, even likely, a literal rendering of what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar in this passage becomes. 
For a long time, we didn't have sufficient historical evidence to support this idea that one of the greatest kings on earth simply and immediately disappeared from his rule and then wandered around like an ox eating grass and living in the wild for seven years. And admittedly, it sounds a bit far-fetched, doesn't it, if you think about it? But through later archaeological discoveries of ancient writings and even through uh, modern medical science, the picture seems to point to this account of Nebuchadnezzar as being accurate and, in fact, literal. Uh, First of all, we know now that a Greek historian named Abinanus wrote in 268 B.C. that Nebuchadnezzar was possessed by some god and that he had immediately disappeared. Furthermore, there is no historical record of his governmental activity between 582 B.C. and 575 B.C., Exactly seven years of historical silence. And the silence is deafening when you consider how it was consistent. In fact, it was commonplace for Near Eastern leaders to trumpet their achievements and hide their embarrassments when it came to ancient record keeping. And so you will often see in ancient records from uh, ancient rulers uh, blank spots in the records because they won't record something terrible that happened to them. And so for a seven-year period, just as Scripture says that Nebuchadnezzar was wandering about like an ox, the record books that we've discovered go silent. And then they pick right back up upon his return just as it is described in the next portion of our story, as we'll see. And as crazy as it sounds for this man to roam around like an ox and eat grass, there is a well-documented form of insanity called insania zoanthropica, where people think of themselves as animals and imitate the behavior of that particular animal. But further still, there's an even more specific form of that behavior called boanthropy, where there's a delusion that one is an ox. And now we have records back to all the way to 1946 from Dr. Raymond Harrison of Britain who had a patient suffering from boanthropy and displayed the same exact behavior described in our text here concerning Nebuchadnezzar. I love it when modern science and archaeology catch up with scripture that was written thousands of years before it. It's brilliant. So the king had an opportunity to humble himself and possibly avoid his seven years of living off the land, to to put it politely. He had an entire year to repent before this happened, but he wasn't willing to recognize the source of everything good in his life. And God resisted him in the worst way. Nebuchadnezzar went from the highest of heights to the lowest of lows, from king to creature, from wealth to destitution. From standing atop the tallest, most majestic buildings in existence to crawling around in the dirt, eating grass. Out of his mind for seven long years. I guarantee you, whatever prideful pleasure he enjoyed during that first year after the dream was not worth the seven years of utter humiliation and loss that followed it. We can humble ourselves Or we can be humbled by God. And and in truth, we should recognize that both of those are, in fact, acts of grace. When God gives us an opportunity to humble ourselves, it is an act of grace. In fact, the warning itself is an act of God's grace. Why? To keep us from ruining our own lives. In Romans 12, 3, Paul says, For by the grace given to me, 
In other words, it is by grace that I give you this warning. I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So judge yourself soberly, even when it's hard to do, even when it makes you feel uncomfortable, because there is no comparison to the alternative. And yet even still, when we don't soberly judge ourselves as we should, and God does turn and humble us, don't get angry at God, which is what so many people do. We should accept that humility for what it is. It is, in fact, His grace that is keeping us from destroying ourselves. In truth, His grace saves us. Paul said, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Ephesians 2.8, God is the source of every good thing in our lives, which includes the humility that comes either by our own hand or by His. Okay? The opportunity for Nebuchadnezzar to humble himself was an act of God's unmerited grace, as was God's humbling of Nebuchadnezzar, which we'll see as we finish this part of our story for today. Let's read verses 34 through 37. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. I bet you do. For all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. He was certainly qualified. To make that statement, after seven long, hard years, Nebuchadnezzar not only recognizes that God is our ultimate source, but he also understands that God is our ultimate authority. Back in verse 34, when Nebuchadnezzar says, I lifted my eyes to heaven, that was his first step in restoration because it not only meant that he was seeking help from God alone, but he was implicitly acknowledging the kingship of God over all creation, something that he had never done before. And you'll see later, uh, in the, as later in the same verse, uh, he refers to God as the Most High, right? Well, back in verse 32, when the voice from heaven came, it said, You shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You'll be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time will pass over you. Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And here he is acknowledging the true kingship of the Most High. This was his first great act of humility toward God. And the result of it was it opened the floodgates of God's grace in Nebuchadnezzar's life. You see, we owe everything that we have and all that we are to God. And it's not... It's not only important that we understand that, have some intellectual assent to that, it's equally important that we acknowledge and express that in our lives and how we live and how we speak and how we act and our relationships and everything that we do. 
I love uh, in the first article of the, the small catechism, Martin Luther wrote these words. I believe that God has created me in all that exists, that he has given and still preserves to me body and soul, eyes, ears, and all my limbs, my reason and all my senses, and also clothing and shoes, food and drink, house and home, wife and child, land, cattle, and all my property, that he provides me richly and daily with all the necessaries of life, protects me from all danger and preserves and guards me against all evil. And all this out of pure paternal divine goodness and mercy without any merit or worthiness of mine for all which I am in duty bound to thank, praise, serve, and obey him. This is most certainly true. You see, God is our ultimate source and he's our ultimate authority. And so as Christians, we really must divorce ourselves from the idea that we are in any way self-made. And Paul reminds us that you are not your own. He says you're bought with a price. So why do we hold on so tightly to areas of our lives out of fear of losing something that never belonged to us in the first place? We don't even belong to ourselves. We're his. Our stuff is his. Our families are his. Our accomplishments are his. And our dreams and our aspirations and all of our effort and everything that we produce, it all belongs to God. Why? Because he's the source of it all and he stands in authority over it all. It's so critical for us to get these two points of truth ingrained into the DNA of our faith because they're foundational building blocks to a life that is lived humbly before God. And once we get it in us, once we really begin to live with the understanding that he is our source truly and that he is our ultimate authority, first of all, it takes the pressure off of us to have to try and be something that we're not. It's one of the reasons that so many people struggle with depression. And there are all sorts of uh, causes of depression, and I understand that. But one of the reasons that people struggle with depression is because they see themselves as hopelessly unable to lift themselves out of their circumstances or shortcomings, even though they continually try. And yet the very thought that we would ever be able to do that is the very definition of pride. Because it is something that only God can do. And of course he does that often through efforts on our part. So it's not as if we sit around and do nothing. But he is the source. He is the authority. He calls the shots. And any thought that we have outside of that is pure pride. Which is one of the reasons why so many people who struggle with pride also struggle with depression. Because we give ourselves far too much credit for what we think we can control when actually he's in control of it all. And sometimes people go so far down that road, they actually end their life in this world anyway. But look, death is simply a beginning to the rest of eternity. We can't even control that. We actually have no authority in these matters whatsoever. It is God alone who ultimately determines life and death because those two are eternal matters that we cannot control. It's so recognizing him as our source and our authority takes pressure off of us completely. It also gives us perspective. A humble perspective that can bring 
great clarity and peace in the midst of life's most difficult storms. We have got to learn to let go of the things we cling to. And I'm telling you guys, I'm talking to myself. So if any of you gets anything out of this, that's great. But just give me a moment with myself because I'm getting a lot out of it. We have to let go of the things that we cannot control. We cling so tightly to fears and uncertainties and future question marks that we have no control over. We have to allow God to be who he is in our lives. He's the source of every good thing and he's an authority sovereign over all of it. Let it go. Let yourself off the hook. Rob, let the pressure go. You can't control it. Give yourself some perspective. Look, I tell myself this all the time. It's so true. And yet, in spite of all that, there is a greater, even greater result, if you can believe it. You let go of all the pressure. You gain all this perspective. But there's something even greater when we humbly recognize God as our ultimate source and authority. And it is this. When we do that, His grace abounds in us when we lift our eyes to heaven and we recognize him for who he truly is he floods our lives with grace and blessing in verse 36 right after he looked to God as his source and authority Nebuchadnezzar said my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom my majesty and splendor returned to me my counselors and my lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. This was the greatest king of all time at that point. And he said, more greatness was added to me. What amazing grace afforded to a man who had experienced the greatest pride and yet the very deepest humility. There's a lot that we can learn from the king of Babylon as we survey the landscape of our own lives. What parts are we hanging on to? What fears, uh, what triumphs, what accomplishments do we cling to? What failures, what insecurities, what doubts are we clinging to? Because to continue to do so is nothing more than pride. Believing that we can somehow provide the solution or stand in authority over circumstances that only a sovereign God can control. Why don't we instead let go of everything that we cling to. By the way, things that may be causing resistance between us and God because they are a form of pride. Why don't we die to ourselves instead and follow after the one who is the ultimate example of humility? The one who being in the form of God took no advantage of his equality with God but emptied himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, it is then that he will flood us with grace. Amazing grace that brings salvation and healing and restoration and even greater blessings than we've ever experienced before in life. And it all begins when we look to heaven and we humbly recognize the one who is the most high, our ultimate source and authority over all things. Let's pray.